0: Welcome to the show, Frank. Please take a moment to tell us a little bit more about you and what you've been up to lately.
1: Cool. Thanks, uh, thanks David, for having me on, first of all. Uh, well, for everybody out there, I'm Frank. I'm uh, a, currently a staff engineer at uh, Personio, which is a big uh, HR company based out of uh, Germany. Uh, I joined Personio about uh, a year ago. Before that, I did a couple of years in uh, in fintech, which uh, uh, gave me a lot of uh, appreciation for the sort of more consistent side of things, like uh, uh, losing a transaction is not something a fintech uh, really, uh, really accepts. So uh, especially in sort of um, larger distributed uh, uh, systems with many systems integrating, Often with uh, events and messages, and that was a really interesting uh, experience. Before that, I did a lot of work for uh, the Schiphol, the airport uh, here nearby. I did a fully event-driven, real-time dashboard application for their uh, internal operation uh, with highly sensitive uh, data. Uh, That was in TypeScript, and for the rest, I've done a lot of stuff in uh, in PHP um my current day job is more with uh kotlin so for the like languages or uh whatever and so i've been doing this for a while uh, now i think like i um, close to 15 years of uh of doing this stuff so yeah and i'm uh looking forward to doing it at least 15 years more <laughs> so, yeah.
0: awesome all right thank you for sharing so yeah i i kind of you know i've Followed you for a while with Tati before in the past. And I knew you from the PHP ecosystem, but I did see that you were doing Java and Kotlin and TypeScript as well. Like, it's, I think it's always interesting that the more we do this, the more the language becomes less important. Right. And it's more about all the things you learn along the way, so hopefully we'll We'll get into that in more detail as we go through the episode.
1: Yeah, I uh, I totally agree. Right, uh, so you see uh, all of things sort of lumping together, and doesn't uh, at the end it uh, doesn't really matter what tool you use anymore. But it also means that you're going to encounter the same problems in just in, in different flavors. <laughs> yeah.
0: Yeah, or rewrite the same library 14 times in other languages that you're going to work with. <laughs>
1: Well, like, uh, uh, I have written or rewritten uh, event source which is a, an open source library that I uh, maintain. I've rewritten that in a couple of languages now, which is always an interesting experience because while the majority of the things that you do sort of maintain uh, or they are the same, but some things you really adjust towards what's kind of. Uh, language mechanics uh, you have, and that's always an interesting uh, route to explore when whenever i'm doing that in a new language
0: yeah i mean i I don't have the first question i'll panned out, but i'm going to skip it right now and just go down this little path where we're talking because one of the things i found most important in my career and i think you just kind of alluded to it there as well is that when i wrote c i learned how to write c code when i did php i learned how to write php code when i did alexa i learned how to write alexa code and so forth and so forth right go and rust like i love experimenting with languages but what i love more is learning from the idiomatics of each language. Like concurrency in Go is very different from what I've done in, in PHP. Um concurrency in Elixir is very different to Go as well because it has this actor-based process model. And like it's just through the combination of all of these different idiosyncrasies, I don't even know if that's the right word, of each of these languages and runtimes, but you build up a different picture of what software should look like in your head regardless of the language. Like, I don't think I would be the developer I am today if I hadn't worked in all of those languages and learned all of the different things they do different in their ecosystem. Does that make sense?
1: Uh, Absolutely. Like, uh, (laughs) one of the first uh, conference talks that I uh, ever uh, did was at uh, Alaricon, I think, in, like, when was this, Two thousand. 12 or something like that, and it was a talk called uh, The Knowledge of Others, and it was basically a talk about looking at uh, various uh, ways at solving a problem. And during the talk, I uh, sort of looked at different uh, types of problems and then looked at what languages are uh, most likely to solve that, uh, that, that problem. So, for example, uh, like in in JavaScript, you have a lot of uh, sort of in-process event-driven uh, uh, stuff. So I looked at like, hey, what what does an event uh, emitter a dispatcher look like in, uh, in in JavaScript, and how can we sort of get the same kind of, kind of capabilities in, for example, a, la- uh, a language like PHP, uh, and also what's missing or what's not fitting uh, very well, and how can you overcome that? Like, I think that's a very interesting uh, way of looking at it. But you you look at these languages and how they frame it and the idiomatic uh, uh, solutions always provide a certain type of framing right so for for go like you mentioned go i think the uh, the model of uh, concurrency there is, uh, is very interesting to 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 look at, and it's very like uh, or the way that I did it uh, at least was very uh, channel based, right? This is what Go, the programming language, right, really promotes, and they've got a very strong sense of how you should route write code like that. And using stuff uh, like that in uh, like trying to replicate that in in different languages is, uh, is sort of an interesting exercise. Uh, it doesn't always. Uh, play out, but you can definitely take some learnings from one idiomatic approach and uh, apply it uh, in a different, uh, different space. If anything, it's a lot of fun.
0: Yes, I will 100% agree with that, and I have taken a note about the knowledge of others' Laracon talk. So I'll make sure yeah. there's a link to that in the show notes if I can find that online for people to, to check well, it. Plus like I kind of want to watch it myself. So. <laughs>
1: Well, I don't think it's pr- probably not my uh, my best uh, talk ever. Like uh, I think it was one of the first talks uh, uh, that I ever did in public, and I actually don't remember a lot of it because, like, uh, being on stage, especially at that point, was like uh, such a sort of high intensity, high stress moment that uh, you know my brain blocked the majority out. So, uh, mind you, the quality might be uh, not what you expect it to be. Awesome.
0: All right, let's go back to the planned first question then. So. Obviously, we've discussed event sourcing before. You've already mentioned event sauce, your library. You've now written it in multiple languages, um, and it's a great way for people to get started with event sourcing. But what I want to understand is how did you even end up in this event-driven architecture ecosystem? How, what led you from writing you know, your your PHP and just writing web apps or whatever it was you were doing back in the day to going, oh crap, like I want everything to be event-driven. What was the path like for you there?
1: Well, so uh, I was very fortunate enough to work on a couple of projects where uh, this was just needed. Like the only way to do things was uh, an event-driven uh, way. Uh, the first uh, project where it was really relevant was the website for uh, Schiphol. And so that was still in sort of the website uh, area, but it, it got a little bit more complex with uh, some some logic there. But effectively, the way that we had to ingest flight information needed to be as close to real-time as possible, right? So as soon as possible, view on what the planes were doing. As a customer, you wanted to know, like, hey, I'm going on a KLM flight and I'm going to London. What's the status of the of the flight? Uh, I want to, in my web app, uh, follow that flight, keep, uh, keep track of it. And whenever something new is up, uh, I would want to see that. Now, the only real way to do that for... The scale that we were at, like doing that for all of the uh, passengers that go through Schiphol, uh, you can't do that on a polling basis and then figure out the delta between all of the flights that are uh, there everywhere. Right? So one, it's it's uh, it's not efficient enough, uh, but it's also not quick enough. Right? You want it as soon as it as it happens. So we built a, a whole event-based uh, integration uh, there, and that was really on the consuming side of an event stream. So. I would say that's a relatively comfortable way of starting out in the event-driven space is to be a consumer of events, right? You can sort of skip the whole how, when, and in what form should I be producing this and just see it as a stream of information that you can respond to, that you can create projections from and all that. So that was my sort of initial introduction into the event-driven space, which was soon followed by going into the event-sourced space. For this same airport, we created a a way to book parking spots for Schiphol, which for uh, an airport is a huge revenue stream. And so it being a huge revenue stream, you also want to get a high level of insight into what is going on and why things are going the way they are. So, for example, if you're booking parking spots, you get uh, multiple types of parking spots made available for you, which are at different price ranges. So you also want to know as a vendor of these parking spots, like what does the positioning of those parking spots do for the general choice of the parking spots afterwards? Right, So you can do this with uh, just uh, an API call and record the response, then track where you positioned it, and then do a separate call afterwards to say like, hey, which one uh, was picked? Uh, but it's very indirect. And a more direct way is to just record that all of uh, as events, and then uh, make sure that you use those events to gain those insights along the way. There, I was very fortunate to work with uh, Marijn Heisenfeld, who was doing event sourcing like I think maybe even before I started programming. Uh, So I had a very like a veteran of event sourcing uh, as a mentor and as somebody who guided that entire project. So I was very much in a following capacity when I was uh, executing that. And uh, Marijn was uh, really leading that effort there.
0: Nice. Well, yeah, I I got a couple of questions, right? So you can imagine event-driven and then event sourcing. And you know, to the people that are listening, I'm gonna ask you very the same question twice, but for each of those. I and mean, you can just say yes or no, or you can give more information if you want, right? But would you say that most applications could benefit from adopting some event driven aspects? Yes. Right. What about event sourcing? Is this what the question I'm really getting at here is? What is the decision? What what thought process do people need to make before they say yes? I'm going to bring event sourcing into my application. Can they do it for all applications, or is it a very specific requirement need? How how do you make that decision?
1: Yeah, for me, it needs to be the core core business that you're uh, that you're modeling. And there needs to be a, uh, like, I like it when there is a a temporal effect uh, to it. So multiple things happening after each other. There's a sequence to it. uh, And uh, what happens is sometimes as interesting as the state that you end up with. So if you compare it to CRUD applications, right, CRUD applications, you have a state, something happens, you overwrite something, you have a new state, you overwrite the past effectively. This also means that you lose that state, right? So you forget about the past, but you also forget the delta. With event sourcing, you store everything that happens as a general principle, as events, and then you just append those events so this also means that you retain all of the information over time but you also retain all of the delta Uh, in fact the thing that you retain is the delta so you're always able to get from where you were to where you are now Uh, and there are a couple of benefits to that which some problems are more prone to benefit from than others So, for example, if you have changing policies and those policies need to be applied, even though something was vetted through the process before and was deemed okay, now a new policy is added, things no longer uh, valid. How do you deal with that, right? Having that stream of events and not just the outcome of something is valid, yes or no, right? is useful in, in such a uh, case if you're doing something that's purely crud right I need to get have an inventory or I need to have what is it a user management all of those things probably not useful because you're you're only uh, interested in really the current state of things like how how things got there uh, you don't really care about it permission management right? You don't care about how the permissions uh, got to the state where they were, but you care about what your current permissions are and how to apply them. So not all problem areas really benefit from it.
0: You got to understand your domain to the point where you understand there's value in those missing pieces of information that we purge with a standard CRUD-based operating system. I kind of understand that, right? (laughs) But then by saying that we wouldn't adopt event sourcing for a current application, I think what the subtext is saying there is that there's a cost of adopting event sourcing within your organization. Yeah. It's, that it's, it's not, uh, oh, it's just four lines of code and I've got an event sourced application anymore. So I'll come at this from two different angles Then it's like, what what is the cost? Why is it challenging for people to bring event sourcing into an application, to their team, to their organization? And part two of that is, well, what? Is there a future where event sourcing becomes more of a commodity where it is easier to bring into a project without that cost?
1: Yeah. So there's definitely a cost to it. I would argue that the cost is mostly misinterpreted or misassigned. The biggest cost is probably that on people. So if you're looking at experience for crowd based application development, it's there in abundance. If you're looking at uh, the experience in building event-driven uh, architectures, there are still plenty, but it's a lot fewer than like finding people who can build good CRUD applications. Where people usually attribute the cost of, of event-driven architectures is saying like, hey, now I need a queue. Now I need all of these background processes. Uh, now I need all this orchestration. Uh, and I would just say, like, that's that's not inherent to event-driven architecture. Uh, so you can do event uh, sourcing, uh, which is a very event-centric approach of modeling uh, domains. Uh, you can do that in a single-threaded language like PHP without a queue, right? You can do in-process consumers uh, where uh, the events that you record are passed in the same web request to the consumers that project their state, send their emails, uh, send, send out uh, API calls to other kinds of services. That's all possible. Is it ideal? No, but it is a good starting point, right? If you have a tiny application uh, that needs to do, uh, need to do a couple of things, reliability is not yet a big concern. Then you can really reduce the cost by turning down all of these levers, right? You don't need fully fault tolerant uh, everything at the start of a project, right? So, uh, yeah.
0: Okay. So let's pivot the question again one more degree. You've got this team of engineers, your honor, right? You're you're kicking ass. You built an event driven system before. You've got event sauce in two thousand languages. Anybody can build event source and application nice and easy. Would you personally, just you? If I came across and said I have this really simple CRUD-based application uh, or microservice that we need as part of a larger application, at that point, is it easier for you to do it with event sourcing, or is there still a cost for you to do it? Like, I'm wondering, if, like, if I have the experience, if we have a team of experienced people, like, would you default to event sourcing, or would you go just credit, just credit? No.
1: So uh defaulting to any type of technology for me always sounds like a very dogmatic thing to do so you need to balance it with uh, like the benefits uh, of implementing some uh, something and the cost of it and so especially when you have a large uh, team around you, if you don't have any event-driven experience within a, a company, then you're saying like, "Hey, we're gonna change this core component, and we're gonna switch it from a more CRUD-based to a uh, event-driven uh, approach." I, that has a serious expense to it. So it, it's more that the expenses that you're gonna, the organization will need to learn about event-driven architectures, and that means that they're gonna fail at, at it for some time. And so you need to find a, a mode within the company that they're able to fail. Uh, and sometimes the expense is, um, is high, but even, even then it can be okay enough to, to, to do it. So for example, in, in some uh, systems that I worked on, all of the adjacent business processes were taking direct database access uh, to the columns that they needed uh, to get their information from. Well, this also meant that it was very difficult to change that system. So by introducing events, we allowed the second secondary business processes to decouple from those internals, giving the internals the freedom to change. right? So because this was a very necessary change for the system, the rewards were higher than the cost, right? And so in those cases, you can do that. But you need to have seen sort of the other side in order to make that assessment. And that's sometimes difficult, right? If you have decision makers within the same company who haven't yet, uh seeing that uh, that benefits and then it's uh, hard to sell them based on the on the claims and the merits of those uh, those solutions
0: yeah i love that you mentioned the the failure aspect there i think what a lot of people often forget is that people with experience or people that are good at writing kotlin that doing kubernetes building a microservice or doing event source and they weren't magically good at it because they've done it lots they're, they're good at it because they've done it wrong more times than anyone else right and it's yeah teams have to build up that competency and sadly the the fastest way to do it is to get a lot of shit wrong so
1: <laughs> yeah you have to sort of uh like eat dirt and get up and continue
0: uh. all right now we've chatted for like 20 minutes now um and we haven't really tackled for anyone who's new to event source and cqrs and event-driven architectures a kind of overview now we have covered a little bit of it through your conversation. You've talked about squashing or losing history and maintaining history and stuff like that. But maybe we could give people a quick five minute overview on EDA, event sourcing, and CQRS and how those work together.
1: Yeah. All right. I, I will start with uh, with event sourcing. So, event sourcing is really a way to model problem uh, domains. you uh, are using events as the, the primitive to uh, record what's happened, so to store states. In event sourcing specifically, you also say that the states that you use in order to base new decisions upon are, in essence, sourced by the events that you record. And this usually means that you reconstitute your uh, domain model by reapplying all of the events of the past, putting you in the condition to make a decision. That will then, again, re- uh, result into uh, a newly recorded event. Uh, this is different from traditional entity-based and state-based uh, uh, modeling uh, where you overwrite uh, the past. A reason why this is, was introduced is effectively for not uh, losing the history that you uh, have recorded uh, along the way. It's very inspired by accounting if you have a bank account somewhere and uh, you deducted too much money somewhere right you don't get that row uh, uh adjusted you get a counter uh, transaction uh, that says like hey i'm gonna file a correction now uh, so for example i overbooked uh, some money i removed 120 uh, but i meant to uh, deduct uh, 100 now i'm gonna uh, sort of reimburse you uh, 20. We all know how this happened and how we got to the end state. We know how the correction happens. Well, for some business processes, this is really important uh, to, uh, to have as, uh, as context. Now, that's sort of event sourcing in its, in its essence. So uh, sometimes it helps to uh, relate back to other primitives to sort of see uh, how it really works. I usually say, like, hey, an aggregate, which is what, uh, or an aggregate root, which is what you refer to in event sourcing terms as, as the entity, is sort of the, you have a stream of events, and you sort of map reduce that, the, those events into a state. You use this state in order to provide the context for your next decision, and then afterwards are more events, and that's what you get out. The benefit of this is that it becomes really deterministic. If you have state based application applications, you need to set the state and whether that state is something that you would end up in or not, right? That's that's out of the question. And then you need to make a decision. And then uh, a new state is what you actually assert on in event driven systems, especially event sourced ones. You can have a really nice given when then structure, which says, like, given these events, when I do this action. Now I ex- uh, expect these events to be recorded, and that's very deterministic. It's almost like mathematical in that uh, in that sense. You can sort of see that as a proof of the system working uh, without having to manipulate any inner parts of the system. So that's uh, that's very nice. So I think but does that uh, sort of clarify the whole uh, event sourcing uh, uh, part?
0: Yeah, I think that was spot on. Um, I'm going to add one example that I find really useful and. I can't remember who it was. Uh it was either you that told me it in the pub or maybe it was Greg going on one of his talks. But it was the e-commerce example where if you think about building an Amazon and someone adds something to a car and removes it from the cart and they do that five thousand times and then they buy one item, there's five thousand items there that you can upsell them later if you track that they added it and removed it from the car. And that that was the one I and I still don't remember that example clear as it's today is the one one i went oh there is a lot of value and some of that information that we've always parched in the past
1: yeah i think uh, one of the situations that i think is uh, often underutilized even in event sourcing is recording of failure so if you uh, if you uh, for example want to pay for something but you have insufficient budget right in a entity-based system or a state-based system right you say i'm uh, I'm entering the method. Do I have enough balance? Uh, if no, uh, throw exception. If yes, mutate the stage. So only then it has effect. Within the event source system, you might say, um, go into the, uh, uh, the method, uh, see if there is enough balance. If not, record an event and throw an exception. And you always store any uh, type of event that you record. So usually you put that in a try and then finally block where even if there is an exception, you store all of the recorded events. And all of the sudden you have insights into all of your unhappy paths. right? So you can capture the context of the failure. And that's really like where you see the users have friction with your product or with your business process or anything in relation to that.
0: Nice, great example. All right, let's tackle the, the next one then. So CQRS.
1: Yeah, so CQRS, like, I, I'm, I'm bigger on event sourcing than I am on CQRS. So CQRS, I often see, or when it's talked about in the community, it's, it's talked about applying it in a very dogmatic way. And so you're, uh, you have to separate uh, everything that's an instruction to the system, so uh, that, uh, that tells the system to do something. And the other part is really how to get information out the reason they they want that is to allow for different models on how you query that data which are optimized for querying and the decision model is not necessarily the best model to also uh, query it so for example if you have an order based system and you want to aggregate how many orders there were today and what their cumulative amount was, right? you can do a sort of SQL aggregation over that. But uh, it might not be very efficient if you have a large amount of customers, right? So using events to then say like, hey, I'm going to record all of the events of the purchases. And then I've got a secondary model, which is the accumulation of all of the amounts that were uh, stored for a day. You have a, a sort of a live view of what that means across the day. And querying it is just basically querying a column uh, within a database, right? Very efficient. And so there's definitely value in uh, separating out these models, uh, but always doing that, right? I think lacks a bit of uh, nuance in that sense, right? Uh, for many of the the problems that you have, the original decision model has enough uh, uh, data points that you can use for reads and also always doing it, how do you say this? A lot of people applying CQRS uh, also say like, hey, then you put it on a message bus. And so that means that the state that you want to query maybe in the same request is already eventual consistent. And so then you need to deal with that fact again. So, uh, well, people create all kinds of ways to to work around that problem. So one is like uh, your aggregate uh, has versioning, and now your projections have versions as well. And you're just going to pull the, the read model until you get the right version if you want to get the response for that, that version. I'd, that's a possibility, but it's also very cumbersome, right? So you get some dogmatic things like, command buses shouldn't return any uh, values and all that shenanigan, like those shenanigans. I think it's too dogmatic. So I think as a pattern, like being able to separate those things, fine. Always doing that, I don't really see the value in that.
0: Okay, let's touch on one more thing and then we'll move on with the questions. But you've covered event sourcing, great. CQRS, perfect. So if we have all of these events, we have to build projections. Um, We have message buses. A lot of what we're seeing here, right? Kind of maps to what I'm seeing in a different ecosystem, which is cloud native Kubernetes, right? We're seeing microservice adoption which is being built on event driven architectures where people are preferring to do publish events to NATS or Kafka, RabbitMQ, et cetera. And all of these service are independent, right? The goal is to be loosely coupled. And it feels like there's actually a lot of crossover and benefits to both of these architectures maybe working together. But I'm curious if this is something that you've seen a lot of from the event sourcing ecosystem. Are people doing microservices Are projections of microservices? Like how do these two different tangential things work together or correlate?
1: Yeah. And so I think they're just the same thing at the different scale. right? So if you've got a monolithic application that is recording messages that the, that it's consuming itself in order to record state as a projection that it's surfing on a different rest endpoint that's for me the same as two services which are which there is a dependency between which where you have a source system for information and a dependent system and it's using messages uh, to be kept up to date right so in essence, it's the same thing, but then scaled up uh, and maybe with a higher infrastructural cost uh, associated with it. But in principle, it's, uh, it's just the same. The thing where, uh, where it deviates is uh, in the uh, coupling and knowledge uh, area. So if you have two different services, you know that the services have a different level of detail regarding a particular subject. So if you're in a monolithic uh, situation where you're the consumer of events, uh, you tend to have a, a high level of detail and a high level of volatility of the information that you're consuming. So if you're modeling your business processes with events, then innovating on that business model means changing events. If you're doing that for yourself, you're exposed to your own volatility. So that means that you need to, if there is a new version of something, you need to account for the backwards compatibility, at least for the periods where you're exposed to those uh, changing events. Now, if you amplify this to the microservice world, this volatility means usually uh, that you're going to be disrupting other services unless they accommodate for this change as well. And especially in larger organizations where those uh, services are not maintained by the same people, this is where you get uh, up into shit creek area, right? So if you're changing the event stream that somebody else is consuming and you're not informing them and allowing them to accommodate this uh, in in some uh, way, shape or form, you're going to cause a disruption in production. And so that's more difficult. Now, luckily, there are patterns to deal with it. Uh, but this uh, usually, like you asked before, like, hey, what's the cost of uh, introducing event-driven uh, stuff into into projects? It's learning this and learning the ways to deal with it. So in uh, event-driven architectures, usually say like, hey, just expose everything, right? So as a, a first iteration, I- I've got all my internal domain events. Well, now they're all external domain events and everybody can listen to everything. Now... I want to change something. I've done the whole integration part before. Now I want to change anything. Now I need to change all of my integrations, right? And so while event-driven architecture is usually attributed that is great for decoupling, unless you do that on the information level, you're still just very highly coupled from business process to business process. And you still need to do sort of diligent information disclosure and deliberate information disclosure in order to prevent that, right? So within object-oriented stuff, uh, we say, well, we've got an interface and then you can touch these public things, but you cannot touch these private things, right? Within event-driven architectures, especially if your implementations mature, you see the same effect, right? You've got internal information streams, and you've got external information streams, and you, you act differently uh, with object-oriented. You say like, hey, I'm maintaining sort of a backwards compatibility for a large degree, and sometimes I'm creating uh, APIs with a new version, right? That same applies to event-driven architectures, but there then you're uh, accommodating that by versioning the payloads that you send, and then putting anti-corruption layers in place, which are either on the producing end or on the consuming end, that smooth over the differences between these versions. So that means, for example, if you are uh, producing a new version of your event, uh, which has uh, more fields or fields that are just formatted a little bit different, something that's really backwards incompatible, then What you can do is have sort of a mechanism on the producing end that says like, hey, I'm going to consume this uh, stream and I'm going to convert it to the older version and publish that as well. And so a mechanism like that uh, gives other parties a uh, a lenience period where they can uh, still rely on the old information stream, uh, but then also have at their disposal an uh, event stream which they can consume in parallel uh, and then try it out for a bit and then convert all of their integrations without needing to do it at, as a hard cut. Yeah.
0: Can I just confirm something there? Because that was really really interesting to me personally, right? Because versioning is hard. Um, and when we talk about challenges of this, I'm sure versioning is going to be one of the biggest ones. So maybe we'll come back to it, but I never really saw a bit publishing or having a producer who already has all the knowledge of the versions, right? Because it's their domain do you publish them as separate events with the different versions or do you like wrap them in an envelope and publish them as one event with multiple versions as a payload? Like how, how does that work in practice?
1: In practice, it's, uh, uh, so if you need to couple them in the same message, they need it to be produced atomically, right? So thinking of this a little bit uh, longer, I think you, you can do it like that even if the producer uh, doesn't uh, uh, produce them both versions. But what would the benefit be?
0: Well, I was thinking if the producer emits version three of an event yeah. and it has a function to downcast it to V1 and V2, wraps them in an envelope and publishes it, then the consumers can kind of cherry pick out the version that they understand the most or the latest version that they yeah. react to and, and handle it. But then I guess you, you, you also want downstream to be working through the latest version too. Yeah,
1: yeah. Tough problem. So that is possible. You would be publishing multiple versions of the same event inside of the same event stream, right? So uh, what you sometimes uh, have is that upgrading event versions or entire streams, they're used as an opportunity also to re-provision all of the infrastructure that's behind it. So if you need more topics on your Kafka stream, right? Having a new stream is sort of an opportunity to say like, hey, I'm gonna over-provision a little bit again. So I've got some breathing room for my concurrency uh, for my consumers. So usually you want to have that as a possibility. Uh, now a consumer will rarely in one business process consume multiple versions of the same event, right? So usually uh, what you do as a consumer is you're gonna put side by side multiple consumers that do uh, version A and version B side by side, and then you can uh, sort of uh, compute like if you want to do a, a parallel run, uh, you can uh, uh, check for uh, for differences uh, afterwards. So they just have one thing. So you you can you can certainly do it. I've never seen it being done like that. So usually what you uh, what you see and what I think is idiomatic in that space is that you have either on the same uh, stream uh, you have that payload of mer- multiple versions. so you have a type and a version of the type and it's uh, published over the same stream, or if the entire stream is being upgraded from one version to another, which is usually, uh, the case if the structure of the data or the payloads are fundamentally uh, changing so either there's something changing in the envelope uh, that's usually a case where everything go- bumps up one version then you see uh, more often that an entire new stream of events is being introduced for those cases nice
0: well it feels only fitting that we're talking about some of the hard stuff then with event sourcing that we maybe see are there any other challenges that you've faced adopting event sourcing is and in other places that you want to share with people. Like, you know, assuming some massacre is listening to this podcast is went, you know what, this sounds really cool and hard, yeah. but really, really cool. Like what else should they be looking at for? What else have you worked through?
1: Yeah. So one of the areas where it's both a virtue and a, and a curse to have event-driven architectures in place Uh, is disaster recovery. So as soon as uh, sort of metaphorical shit hits the fan and uh, maybe you have catastrophic uh, infrastructure failure and the consuming system uh, loses all of their state, they need to rebuild that state from somewhere. So in more state-based systems, you either work off of maybe a database replica or something else. You sort of uh, like uh, ingest uh, or restart that uh, whole replication process. With database-native technologies, you're in in place relatively relatively quick. For event-driven architectures, it can be more cumbersome, and you need to design for it. So, for example, if you need to if you've got a projection and you need to recreate all of your current state based on everything that's been recorded before, the question is always like, how far back do you need to go in order to figure out what to reconstitute from? Are you going to do that from the epoch of your business, right, from day one of your business? Or are you going to have some intermittent states where you're going to say, like, all right, I've got a snapshot of the, of the state that it was at. And now I'm going to reconstitute from, from that point and out and reconsume. Now, that is not something that is very trivial to design for. And you need to apply a couple of sort of supporting practices which help you uh, to do that. I think Kafka as a technology makes it easier to do some of those things, mostly because they have a incremental offset-based storage strategy where you know where you left off. And if you have a snapshot that's at a particular Kafka uh, partition uh, combination, you can take that state and know, all right, I was exactly there, and I can uh, go on and uh, reconsume uh, the rest. If you don't have such a system and you have got your own sort of like delivery mechanism, if you're going through RabbitMQ or any type of other like sort of transient message queue implementation, right? You need a way to inform the producer of uh, those events to reflush whatever they had. So reconstitution of uh, these uh, read models becomes a lot more involved. So it's it's not all cherries and rainbows uh, in that sense. One of the things that you uh, can actually do is use your partitioning strategy and your log compaction strategy on Kafka to always ensure that all of the leave nodes retain the latest bit of information. And if that fits your domain model, then you can use that as a way to quickly get to the latest state of everything. Because effectively on all of those partitions, you guarantee with like every key, the last message of that key contains... The last state that I'm interested in, in order to get to the to the current state. But that's very much like in the details of uh, of your implementation already. So there are opportunities there, but you really need to understand whether those solutions really match the problem space where you're applying it in, and that's not always
0: the case. Awesome. All right, I'm not sure how many people still want to build event source systems after hearing that, but <laughs> <laughs> it definitely is. It's fun. Man. At least
1: well. So sometimes you don't have a choice, right? So for example, if you have a source system which is unreliable and you have a high-value system that's dependent on it, right? Are you gonna accept the downtime of this system as a limiter for your value creation stream? Like no, right? So you want to be kept up to date with the, with the latest information. So. Yeah, you're going to swallow some of those costs and, uh, and difficulties that are associated with event-driven uh, architectures. Usually, you just uh, trading one bag of problems for another, where you hope that the, the downsides of those problems will affect you less and that the upsides of having done that will reap you more benefits.
0: Exactly, the, the classic answer. It depends, right? Like, you got you got depends. to pick your trade-offs. Yeah. You got to pick uh, which level of complexity you need for your application. And event sourcing yeah. has a very uh, interesting and applicable and useful and value add in some domains that you really need to go down the rabbit hole,
1: but definitely, <laughs> definitely not all. Yeah. <laughs> all
0: right. Well, I'm curious then. What are you excited about these days? What new shiny things are you playing with, experimenting with, or even just interested in? You've not had time to play with yet. Like what? What's in the future for Frank?
1: So I'm I'm curious to see if we like uh, on the sort of real time aspect of ingesting data. There's a lot of like experience that I have and implementing that. The one area where I have a lot less experience is on the sort of on the controlling side of it right so real-time interactions with with system uh, systems which can also be message based from so sort of, imagine you have a react ui and that's uh, uh, that's not a blog or another type of uh, sort of uh, simple information system but more like a system that you really interact with hands-on to see like hey how can you interact with that system in real time and then get real-time responses uh, out So I know that PHP is not really a language where that's uh, super easy to do. In the sort of TypeScript node world, uh, there's definitely uh, some precedence for that. And in the Java, uh, like JVM ecosystem, there's also uh, a bit of that. But I also want to learn more about Rust. So maybe I'll just use Rust as my uh, next language to experiment with and implement that. So uh, yeah, uh, that's a general area, but it's still really fuzzy for me. Uh, uh in terms of like hey what does that really look like and what type of uh, uh systems can i study in order to learn more about it
0: sweet all right well i'm looking forward to seeing event source and rust then i think that's going to be a <laughs> a lot of fun for you to watch i'
1: I'm, I'm i'm guessing it should uh, probably like uh, if i'm looking at rust it probably involves some kind of macros uh, so <laughs>
0: I mean, you could write some really sweet procedural macros in Rust to handle the replay logic within a struct. I think that would be super cool and everything would work within an implementation block. I think the developer experience and the API you could provide for event sourcing in Rust would far surpass any other language. Yeah. All right. Because it has really great macro support. Metaprogramming in Rust is good. Metaprogramming in Go. Not, so, Not
1: so much. No, <laughs> no. Like in, in Go, Go, there's some awkward bits if you need to do uh, uh, event sourcing uh, uh, there because like it's very difficult to do anything very dynamic and event stuff is usually usually benefits from some
0: dynamic forms
1: of programming.
0: Well, well go to add generic support in one eighteen or one nineteen. So I, I think that landscape is now wide open for some innovation, but certainly prior to that. Uh, it's been tedious at best so uh, this has been awesome thank you so much for spending the last hour of your life sharing your event sourcing journey with me and loads of interesting information for people listening at home i'll now give you just a minute as you want to share your twitter handle plug your website your company open source projects now would be the time to to plug away. Cool.
1: So uh, if you have any uh, file system needs uh, within the PHP ecosystem, uh, check out uh, FlySystem, which is uh, the main PHP file system abstraction library. Uh, if you need to build anything event sourced also in PHP, uh, check out EventSauce or check out eventsauce.io um check out my employer they're called personio if you're uh, a company that needs to uh, work with hr processes or any other type of hr tooling that's what they provide so uh, do check them out and uh, when i have the time i blog on my personal website which is uh, blog at uh, frankdejonge.nl. all
0: right thank you very much